Support for WMFE comes from JustCallMo.com, an attorney, Mo DeWitt, proud presenter of WMFE's Engage program. Mo DeWitt is committed to offering legal guidance in personal injury cases, such as car accidents and slip and falls. Offices in Orlando. More at JustCallMo.com. Welcome to Engage, leading conversations that matter. Engage explores Central Florida's issues and culture with new voices, new perspectives, and thought-provoking interviews. Engage is made possible with the support of members like you and inaugural sponsor, JustCallMo.com. Engage is hosted by Sharon Stone. You are listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Coming up, we'll talk with the widow of a firefighter who died in service to his community and the book she wrote to cope with his loss. And a Florida historian discusses the history of organized crime in the Sunshine State. And later, we'll stop by the Mills 50 District to hear the sounds of the 2024 Lunar New Year Parade. First though, sickle cell disease is the most common inherited blood disorder. It affects approximately 100,000 Americans. The state of Florida records nearly 7,000 new cases every year. The symptoms are excruciating. With some gripping details, Dr. Simone Yuan describes the crippling effects of this misunderstood but devastating diagnosis that stole much of her youth and cut her career short. The Orlando physician co-founded the nonprofit Sickle Cell Medical Advocacy. Yuan joined Engage to share her story. I was born in Guyana, South America, and the medical technology there was little lagging. So I was uh, not diagnosed at birth like, you know, you hear about in the United States, which is why I, I lobby for testing at different points in life and not just at birth. Um, but I came to the United States and uh, found out at age 19 that I actually had sickle cell disease, even though I was having symptoms my entire life. So I went through uh, my childhood and uh, adolescent years, you know, writhing in bed, curled up in fetal positions, just at random times, not knowing what was happening to me. I didn't know what my triggers were because I didn't know what my diagnosis was. So um, and uh, so I actually was on a plane trip and then uh, to Canada. I was coming back uh, to New York. I was in Columbia University at the time um, and I landed and suddenly didn't feel well. Turns out altitude matters, right, for sickle cell. And so um, I landed and ended up in the emergency room, ended up in the ICU, ended up on life support for eight days, and then found out that I had sickle cell disease and my life was going to change forever going forward. When you were having these moments not knowing what was happening, what did it feel like for someone who doesn't know what you were going through? First of all, I'm usually in a fetal position. I feel like I'm begging for my life. My body is feeling like pain is coming from my bone marrow. It seems like it's coming from every orifice. I feel like I can breathe out pain and I'm begging for my life. I'm, I'm bargaining with God. I'm like, you know, I don't, 
know what's happening to me and I feel like I'm dying, but I, you know, then go through this for a series of days and end up still living. And I can't believe you could go through that and still be alive. But, you know, that's what was happening. When you were in these just indescribable pain in these moments, did people take you seriously? Uh, actually, even my family didn't take they They thought I didn't want to go to school, which is really odd when you think about it, because I love school and I was always placing at the top of my class. So it, it was I, I look back and I think, why do you think I didn't want to go to school? I was always a high performing student. But then I would be, you know, interrupt. And I, I was a high performing student in part because I had to learn on my own. I had to, you know, I would get sick a lot. And so I, I couldn't really build relationships and friendships like, you know, like other children. I, and so I would I would. I would cling to my books. So my books became my escape. And so I wasn't believed most of the time. I would start, you know, cleaning up the house, for example. And then in the middle of it, I would start being in pain. And then I'd say, I can't do it anymore. And people would be like, but you just started. You're only halfway. You know, you're just trying to get out of, you know, cleaning the whole house or, you know, it, it was always, you know, something you're 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 not wanting to come to my birthday party. That's why you're saying you're sick or, you know, you. it's it was it was one thing. And my poor sister, you know, she tells the story of always having to explain my absence, always having to vouch for me that I was really sick. Um, and I never realized how much the effects of it on the family. It's not just me. It's my entire family that is going, you know, going through something, whether we knew what the diagnosis was or not. Um, at age 12, I ended up going into the hospital and having, uh, actually I coded at 12 and they, all they knew was that I was severely anemic. And so they gave me pints and pints of blood, but it was one of those things where, you know, one moment I was well, one moment I was ill. And so people had a hard time understanding that. So fast forward, you've You've gone through all this, and you are a medical doctor, but you had to stop practicing early. Can you talk about just that experience? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm finding out I'm not unlike a, a lot of um, a lot of ambitious people with sickle cell disease. Are careers end early because of the disease. Uh, the disease is progressive. I mean, if you search the country, you probably would find maybe eight of us doctors with sickle cell disease and and probably in the united states about three that are active and out there you know talking about sickle cell disease myself included so it's one of those things that you don't want to talk about but you have to i my career ended early because i ended up having multiple hip surgeries um, from avascular necrosis which is a complication of sickle cell disease you know it's circulation problems so the red blood cells are sick, shaped like a crescent moon when you sickle they get sticky and rigid and they stick on each other and they block the circulation so there's no oxygen or nutrients to the tissue 
and the tissue dies. And that can happen wherever blood flows, right? Like literally wherever blood flows and there are small vessels, which is everywhere, you can have a blockage. So it could be as inconsequential as, oh, my pinky's hurting today because I'm sickling there to, oh, it's my lungs, which is why you see me sitting here with uh, portable oxygen and a nasal cannula in my nose because I've had a lot of hits to my lungs where I've sickled in my lungs and they couldn't, you know, bounce back. So it uh, caused me to have to retire early uh, after having my fifth hip surgery and my body just not recuperating as quickly as, you know, I mean, my job was amazing. They held on to my position for like a year because my patients, you know, loved me and wanted and were like, (laughs) they were wanting me to come back. And uh, I would get like boxes of cards and letters and get well wishes for a year. Um, But it took two years for me to walk on my hip after after the fifth hip surgery. And so it became very obvious that my body wasn't holding up to the physical rigor of being a family practice physician. So I had to kind of stop do some soul searching, pivot, and then I started writing. And um, I now realize it was probably meant to be that, you know, that this is the direction that my life took because now I run a nonprofit organization where I take care of uh, people with sickle cell disease and I help them as they go to the hospital to be able to advocate for better care. Um, A lot of doctors don't know about sickle cell disease. And so uh, people aren't believed, people are turned away, people go home and die. And so um, I can do that now. But I did cause an early retirement because I couldn't, my body couldn't hold up. Why don't doctors know about it? You know, (laughs) that's a a million-dollar question. I know there are a lot of other rare diseases, and I know that somehow, I mean, we talk about, you know, cystic fibrosis that has a third of the population. There are 30,000 in the United States that have cystic fibrosis, and I will never come up against another rare disease. God bless them because they are struggling for their lives as well. But because of sickle cell disease having it's overrepresented by an African-American population, right? People of African descent, um, just because of the genetics of it and where it started. I have blonde hair and blue eyed people with sickle cell disease, but it's by and large overrepresented by people of color. And so black and brown people and when that happens and you think of the decision makers at the table who allocate money for research and awareness and things like that, they're not black and brown. So they're going to make decisions based on what they know, people they know, connections they know. Because of that, doctors won't get the time to learn about sickle cell disease. So when a a person walks into the emergency room, 
that doctor hasn't had but an hour in medical school, I know, because that's what was given to me. Doctors have come through my training program. So I train just motivated members of the community on the NIH guidelines for the urgent management of sickle cell disease. And they will come through and say, we were never taught this. And I say, I know. I went through medical school. This is why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. Simone Yuan is a physician and co-founder of Sickle Cell Medical Advocacy. Ahead on Engage, we'll hear from the lawmaker who introduced the bill providing funding for sickle cell research, and later, the history of the mob in Central Florida. I'm Sharon Stone. You're listening to Engage 90.7 WMFE. You are listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE on this leap day, the 29th of February. I'm Sharon Stone. Ahead on this program, when Brittany Jones's fiance, a Jacksonville firefighter, died while on a rescue call, her life ground to a halt. You're in the bed all the time. It's depression. People don't know what to say to you. People don't know how to treat you. People stray away from you because they're like, oh, my gosh, it's like, I don't know what to say. We will learn how Brittany put pen to paper and learn to live with loss. And if you miss any part of the show today, Engage is available on demand at WMFE.org, the WMFE mobile app, or anywhere that you get your podcasts. So earlier, we heard from sickle cell patient and advocate Dr. Simone Yuan. She shared her enthusiasm at the prospect of the Senate passing this legislation that was approved by the Florida House. I am excited about the new bill that just passed that would give more funding to sickle cell research and treatment centers. We need an alternative to people going to the emergency room and being mistreated. And so it would be lovely to be able to have a nearby ambulatory center where they could go in if they're not as sick and they need just hydration and pain management, that there would be a place that they could go that knows sickle cell disease so that when they walk in, they could have urgent management. House Representative Kelly Skidmore sponsored the bill that allocates $10 million a year for sickle cell research and treatment. She joined Engage yesterday right after her bill passed with unanimous support in the Florida House. What is this bill regarding sickle cell actually going to do in terms of setting aside funding for research? What do you anticipate the impact will be? The impact will be that there is a $10 million recurring in the Florida legislature's budget. So um, both the Senate and House have agreed to put $10 million annually into the creation of this grant. And uh, that type of investment uh, will have serious returns uh, based on the framework that is being created within the grant program and other components of the bill. So this is a very significant milestone for research for this disease. It is the only one of its kind in the country. So it is incredibly significant. And leadership, it's a bipartisan effort on both sides, the Senate and the House, to commit to this research, to commit to creating these centers of excellence 
and to commit to ensuring that there is a workforce educated to and being prepared for the treatment of the disease and research of the disease. So it's landmark legislation in the true sense of the word. You know, we had a doctor of the day on the floor who was telling me about one of her patients who just had a baby and the patient came to her and said, they said something to me in the hospital that she has sickle C, but I don't know what that means and what do I need to do? And unfortunately, this mom is 15, right? So we have to have an educated workforce. We have to have physicians who can identify uh, when an individual has sickle cell. But we need, more importantly, all of those resources and supports beyond the, the diagnosis, right? And we need all a uh, spectrum of healthcare workers to understand the symptoms uh, of sickle cell and believe patients who come to the ER because they have no other ways of being treated with such significant pain to be treated appropriately instead of with an idea that they're coming in to just, you know, shop for meds. You know, there is a, a history of individuals who have this disease of being one, misdiagnosed, secondly, not believed, not only that they have the disease, but that they are in the level of physical pain that they are suggesting they're in. And three, that there is a course of treatment for them. We're talking to Representative Kelly Skidmore about the sickle cell disease research and treatment bill. Why is this an issue that is so important to you? I think that when we have science and technology at our fingertips and we don't use it to advance a treatment of a disease because it is not one that the majority of the population experiences, we are doing a disservice to humanity. So I live in chronic pain. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I was diagnosed when I was four years old. But my treatment has evolved over my lifetime. And I'm able to do all the things that I need to do and live fully in society. You know, I have a full-time job and a family and I'm in the legislature and I do all these things because the research has kept up with my disease, right? And that is what we need to make sure we're doing for sickle cell. And that's why it's so important to me, being a person who has experienced the benefit of research and medicine by being the friend of individuals who have experienced the benefit of research and medicine. And this is a disease that has not been given the level of attention that it needs to be given. And so that's why it's important to me. That was Representative Kelly Skidmore. The Democrat represents Palm Beach. Central Florida has one of the highest average number of cases of sickle cell diagnosed each year in the country. A gene editing treatment approved by the FDA might bring relief. Our health reporter, Joe Mario Pedersen, reported on this therapy. He joins Engage to look at just the impact of advancements on Central Florida. Thanks for your time, Joe Mario. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So give us a sense of just how many people are living with this disease. 
So Florida boasts a yearly average of about 7,000 new cases a year. That's twice the national average, uh, according to a report from last year by the Florida Agency for Healthcare Administration. South Florida and Central Florida lead the state's average diagnosis per year, according to that report. I spoke to Dr. Asad Sheikh, medical director at Orlando Health Cancer Institute, after this treatment got FDA approval in December. Sickle cell disease is a uh, uh, very common uh, genetic disorder in, uh, in certain ethnicity and African-American population is, uh, is number one. And, uh, but we are seeing a lot of other ethnicities, uh, Asian and uh, patients uh, from Iran, Iraq. You know, Florida is, uh, is quite a, a hodgepodge of all these ethnicities. Joe Mario, let's talk a bit more about the gene editing therapy itself. And you learned it's actually been successful in treating some of the most severe forms of this disease, which we've learned has been just debilitating for people who are literally suffering with it. Yeah, that's right. And what this is really is providing uh, another option. The treatment is a breakthrough against sickle cell, which previously only had one known cure, a bone marrow transplant. CRISPR Therapeutics had the treatment brand name Keskeve approved in the United Kingdom. Sickle cell causes a shortage of red blood cells and a lack of hemoglobin, which grabs oxygen molecules and binds them to cells. As a result, those with sickle cell experience chronic pain. According to CRISPR, Cascave uses a patient's bone marrow to edit a gene to express a type of hemoglobin and increase that amount of fetal hemoglobin in the body. Okay, so what hurdles actually stand in the way of this treatment getting to people here? Yeah, that's that's a good question because they are big hurdles. The treatment may not have an immediate impact in the Central Florida area uh, and its large pool of patients. The first limitation is the expense. Cascave is going for a high price point of $1 million, according to uh, the Health Education England's Genomics Education Program. Other outlets have reported the treatment can cost up to $2 million. Hmm. According to a report by the American Medical Association, 70% of patients identify themselves as disabled. And additionally, low employment rates have also been reported along with that disabled status. So the report concludes these patients are likely to have lower earnings. It's going to take up several years uh, for an for average sickle cell patient to have an access to this type of uh, highly advanced therapy. Additionally, a transplant center is required to administer Keskeve. Only five in the state uh, are listed by the National Alliance of Sickle Cell Centers. Orlando Health is not listed, but has a transplant center, uh, I'm told by their staff. But far more will be necessary to make the treatment accessible. Even with the limitations Keskeve has in accessibility, Shake still sees the FDA approval as a huge first step in eradicating sickle cell. Health reporter Joe Mario Pedersen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. We are streaming live online now, and we want to engage with you. Just send us an email at engage at WMFE.org. Americans have had this long-held fascination with organized crime. Once crime syndicates operated in the shadows, but the advent of mass media brought the stories from old country Sicilian mafioso to modern-day Mexican drug cartels right into pop culture. I'm sure you can think of several books or movies or shows about it. And Florida actually holds a special place in mob lore. At one time, isolated from the mainland culture of America, yet in close proximity to islands beyond the reach of law enforcement, it started as a haven for gamblers and bootleggers and evolved. 
Doug Kelly is the author of Sunshine State Mafia, chronicling the rise and the evolution of organized crime in Florida. He joined Engage to talk about the book. And the conversation started with Kelly explaining how one of America's most infamous mobsters helped bring the mafia to Florida. Al Capone was already quite adept uh, being the main mobster in Chicago at uh, all kinds of crime. He had been a boss there and and running everything, uh, extortion, prostitution, burglaries, and also mainly making money off of prohibition. He had come to Florida back in the late 1920s on a couple of trips and actually went to St. Petersburg, bought some properties in St. Petersburg, and uh, had also tried to move out to California, and he got kicked out of California. So he came back to Florida, and uh, he got kicked out of St. Pete <laughs> because they started looking at all of his properties. As you may know, in Chicago, Elliot Ness was after him for tax evasion. So they ended up taking all of his properties in St. Pete that he had bought. So he moved to Miami and went to an island just off Miami Beach and had a, had a, his wife buy the property on the island. And that's how he ended up in as a Miamian. And he spent winters, a lot of winters there. And pretty soon, actually, he, after he was incarcerated, he moved back there and he died in Miami. But once he came down... He was also part of the syndicate of hoodlums from all over the world that would meet in the commission, they called it. And it was composed of uh, uh, dons from uh, New York City, five families, and also families in Buffalo and uh, other places. And so he was able to let people know in the uh, New York and other families that the pickings are really good in Florida. He had great weather year round. There was practically no law enforcement whatsoever. I mean, you had low, you know, you had sheriffs and and, and county uh, officials, and you had a we had a court system, but they were not used to dealing with organized crime. They were only used to dealing with people who would get drunk or people who would stick up a grocery store, uh, someone who would be involved in assault and batteries. But they had no clue about what to do with people who. Had became full-time criminals and or, and began organizing uh, a whole group of people who would be in charge of different things, just like a military. You had a boss, you had people underneath the, the, the general, you had colonels, you had captains, you had soldiers. And that's exactly the structure of a mafia organization. And that happened in Tampa with the Traficanti family. The Traficanti family can you talk more about just how they rose to the top of this national mafia food chain? What happened was Traficanti Sr. came down first, and he was in New Orleans, Santo Traficanti Sr. He's Cuban, and there was a growing population of Cubans in not only Miami, but also in Tampa and Ybor City. And they came here as cigar makers, and uh, he could relate to them, so he moved to, to Tampa and uh, got involved with the, with the cigar people and started realizing they weren't making hardly any money. And pretty soon he had cohorts and began a family, a criminal family, mostly with Cubans, but also with uh, a growing number of Latinos and Italians and others. So he had a son, one of his sons was Santo, he named also Santo. So Santo Sr. ruled up until his death in 1954 
Meanwhile, all this time, his son was being tutored in the ways of the mob and also even went up to New York City and, and met with some of the mobsters up there and learned pretty much how to organize a family and, and make it grow. So around 1954-55, Santo Traficani Jr. took over the family and he really made it grow. Because of his Cuban connection and heritage, he opened things up in Cuba, most notably casinos in Havana, and invited some of the families in the north to also come down and open up casinos because at that time the, um, the, the person in charge was named Batista and he was allowing the uh, criminal element to come in because he was being paid off. So that's how it started with also taking part in prohibition, making money that way, but branching out into the gambling business. And that made Traficante a big player nationally and not just in Florida. In listening to you share that history, I'm sitting here thinking about another important point. The organized crime in Florida isn't just restricted to some Sicilian or Italian mafia. That's correct. As a matter of fact, the main family, or you might say homespun family in Florida, was Cuban-based. But indeed, uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of Italians taking part in crimes. They would come down and they would associate with some of the local gangs, say in Miami or in Key West, find out what is already taking place, take over by way of threats and having money and being able to bribe local officials may be better, being more experienced, if you will, in the ways of how criminal empires are built. So pretty soon, yes, you had an infiltration of people from Italy, Italian mafia, but you also started having other types of mafias come in because of the drug business especially the Mexican cartels. And drugs were coming in by Santo Traficante Jr. had actually built with heroin production facilities in, in, the, in the Asia. And he started opening up lines of getting drugs into the state too. And they were making a lot more money with the illegal drugs, as it turned out, than they even were with the gambling. All that ended the gambling when Castro took over Cuba in 1959. And everybody who was involved, all they lost all of their hotels, all of their money, even though Traficante was giving money to the Contras with Fidel with the assurance that if he took over, they could still operate. And he got double-crossed and actually imprisoned in Havana and bought his way out of that and got back to the U.S. and never went back. So now you have Mexican cartels, Russian cartels. You've got, of course, the Italians and the Cuban mafia. It's, uh, it's a very, still a very burgeoning business in, in the state of Florida, but not like it was before. We're talking to Doug Kelly, author of Sunshine State Mafia. Our audience is based in central Florida. Is there yep. anything you can share about the mafia's history in this region specifically that may be of interest? There was a fellow by the nickname of the Colonel, Harlan Blackburn. And he had gotten involved back in the 50s in the Dixie Mafia. There were actually what they called uh, the country cowboys, the southern cowboys, some called rednecks, who actually were based in Mississippi. And they branched out all over the southeast. And some people like Harlan Blackburn, who was in Orlando, got involved with them. And uh, they were also already doing a illegal form of gambling called bolita. 
B-O-L-I-T-A. And that was a game where simply someone can pay 50 cents or a dollar. They get a number from one to a hundred. They pick any number. And then uh, every three days or every week, somebody would take 100 golf ball sized round structures, number them, put them in a bag, mix them up. Somebody would reach in, pull out a number. And if you had that number, you would win a certain amount of money, $100, $500, maybe more. And it was cheap, so anyone could do it. Well, Harlan Blackburn took that over and, and built it where he was actually generating somewhere between 100000 to $200,000 per week with his Belita game. Of course, that caught the notice of the Traficanis. And so uh, Harlan Blackburn was in cahoots with them in terms of offering him protection from other gangs or anyone else who would try to come in and compete against Blackburn. So he was a major crime figure in Orlando, very colorful, probably behind a murder of one of his lieutenants who he thought was stealing from him. And uh, he got caught, he was imprisoned, came out, got involved in the drug trade, and ended up dying in prison. Doug Kelly is a private investigator and the author of Sunshine State Mafia, a history of Florida's mobsters, hitmen, and wise guys from University Press of Florida. This is scheduled for release next Tuesday. Coming up, we will meet a woman who lost her fiancé when he was answering a rescue call and see how she turned to writing to cope. I'm Sharon Stone. You were listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. And just to let you know, we do want to hear from you. Let us know what you'd like to hear more about or what you're glad you heard. You can send us an email. Just send it to engage at wmfe.org. Or you can do a talkback. Just send it to us on the free WMFE app. You're going to go to the menu, select Send Us a Talkback, just record your question or feedback, hit send. And of course, we can't forget about old-fashioned voicemail, right? Just give us a call, 407-273-2300, use extension 246, and leave us a voicemail there. You are listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. listening to Engage on WMFE 90.7. I'm Sharon Stone. Engage is available on demand at WMFE.org, the WMFE mobile app, or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Brittany Jones, a former television news anchor here in Central Florida, wrote a children's book as a love letter honoring her fallen fiancé, Jacksonville firefighter Mike Freeland. After dating several years, Mike and Brittany got engaged in October of 2020, but the bride-to-be never got to walk down the aisle to say I do. Like many couples, her wedding day was delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic, so they moved the date to March of 2022. But Mike Freeland died in line of duty months before on Veterans Day 2021. The 36-year-old's final actions saved a woman's life. Brittany's book series called Mike the Friendly Firefighter captures his spirit of helping others And it's also inspiring kids with positive lessons. She is traveling the state and reaching out to school systems, including Flagler County Public Schools, to share his story. Brittany joined Engage to share her story 
We begin with the day Mike passed away. It was on Veterans Day, and I remember I had just talked to him an hour before the call, so didn't expect, you know, obviously this to happen to be the the next knock that I got on my door. As you know, as a journalist, you know, we do a number of stories where we have had to talk to families and being like, you never expect you to get that call or that knock on the door. And then becoming one is a whole different ballpark to actually experience it uh, myself for the rest of my life. So he was working to my knowledge, because obviously I wasn't there and I've kind of tried to block out the things that people don't want to know the most. But all I know is the woman got in a, a car accident overnight um, in a U-Haul and Mike was working hard to get all of the things off of her truck because she hit like a light pole or something that fell on top of it. And he was trying to move all the things because her U-Haul was full, furniture, all of that, and ended up collapsing on the scene. And a lot of firefighters talk about that, like the anxiousness and the the mental um, anxiety that they go through and the experience when they are on a scene and just trying to get to somebody and trying to help them. And just the amount of stress that comes with that job, like you never know how it has an impact on your heart and everything else. So in terms of what I know, that's what I know that happened. But I never read any reports or anything like that because all I know is the answer was the same no matter what happened. But he did save her life. How did you deal with this grief or how did it affect you? So the way that I, um, I, I guess I can say that I've been dealing with it is, number one, I already had a therapist. And um, Mike and I have been going to marriage counseling. So it immediately changed from that to grief counseling. Um, And I still go to, I have therapy every other week. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be for the rest of my life because it's like always something different in this process that you experience or what you're going through. And just, it's the unimaginable. You're in the bed all the time. It's depression. It's People don't know what to say to you. People don't know how to treat you. People stray away from you because they're like, oh, my gosh, it's like, I don't know what to say. But people don't realize, like, sometimes you don't have to know what to say because there's nothing you really can say. But you can tell somebody you love them. You can tell somebody you're praying for them. Anything you need, I can be there, whatever it is. And um, I remember what I wanted initially was just a jacket because I was planning, like, a lot of brought to do like the the bridal jean jacket and so instead I requested patches from every one of my stations and like things that represent him so I have this tribute jacket with all of his fire stations on it he loves sneakers so it's like tennis shoes on it he loved his jeep so it's a jeep patch on it so I can definitely see your picture of that but I just wanted something that just really like represented him And that was the, I remember the initial thing of what I just wanted because it felt the comfort of being like wrapped around from him. So the day that would have been our wedding day, I put on my gown and went and took pictures, still had a photo shoot as if it would have been that day. And it was super hard, just like every other day has been hard. But the gift part of it is that his story never dies and that that legacy still continues to live on because of so many people who have been impacted by his life. And now that I'm having the opportunity to share 
his stories through just so many different ways, that is also just a blessing. And one of those ways is a children's book, Mike the Friendly Firefighter. Where did you come up with this idea? So Mike the Friendly Firefighter came about because one day I was talking to one of my close friends and I told him, I was like, man, there are so many stories where Mike just went above and beyond the call of duty and he was just always helping somebody and just super special. And I was like, I wish there was something that I could do with these stories. And my friend goes, she's like, why don't you just put it in a children's book? And I was like, hmm. And she was like, and, and call it Mike the Friendly Firefighter. So it stuck because when she said that, and I'm thinking of like officer friendly and the idea of when she just was kind of just rolling it off, rolling it off of her tongue and me actually being like, this could really be something. So I reached out to one of my friends and asked, um, he had just recently wrote, he had just recently written a book and a children's book and I loved his illustrations. So I was like, who's your illustrator and how'd you get to this process? And so he gave me his book coach and all of these people, everything aligned. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to reach out and see. So now this idea was becoming a real thing to me. And I said, this, I might really be able to do this. And um, I told her, I was like, thank you so much for like just you know, being obedient to God and like throwing out the idea and being like, hey, maybe you should just put it in the children's book. And um, that's where it was birthed. Like I reached out to them and immediately everybody who I brought this project to and told them this is like my love letter to Mike, they wanted to help in any way they could. They wanted to be a part of it because they knew that it was bigger than just, oh, you know, I wrote a children's book because I never had writing a children's book on my radar you couldn't have told me that this is what I would be doing right now. So, you know, writing a memoir, yes. But a children's book, I had no intentions of doing that. It's a real depiction of how Mike lived his life. And I felt like kids, they just needed to be encouraged to be, no matter who you are, to always help someone in need. And that's how Mike lived his life. I saw in an Instagram post about this book, the question was posed, have you ever seen a black firefighter on the cover of a children's book? What do you want children to feel or think when they do see that on your book? That is such a huge deal to me, and especially with it being Black History Month. Well, my friend gave me the idea to create that book, and the literal question that you just asked me was what I thought to myself. When have you seen a black firefighter? on the front cover of a children's book. And I said, Mike and his gifts to the world and how he lived his life would be such a big encouragement to kids everywhere. Because sometimes when you're like on Google, when you're looking up things, and I've, I've done this while I've been looking for things for my events, you only see white firefighters. And so when people see this book, I want them to be encouraged that, you know, you can live a life of service, dedicate your life to service, no matter who you are, you can make an impact on people, no matter who you are, and to always follow your dreams, no matter what those are. So I pray that every child that sees it, they see themselves in this book, they see themselves in Mike, they see themselves as someone who could always help somebody whenever they're in need. And 
also just go after the career you want. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, being that person. If you are inspired to be a firefighter one day, I hope that kids see it and say, you know what? I can be a firefighter because I don't know if black children regularly see black firefighters. So black and brown kids is even in the book, the the little girl, she is Afro-Latina. So I was being, I was very razor focused on making sure that there are layers to this book that everybody sees themselves and it doesn't just hit one culture, but encourages everyone. Brittany Jones is the author of the children's book, Mike the Friendly Firefighter, The Wild Car Fire. It is available online and buying the book supports the Free to Believe Scholarship and the Mike Freeland Foundation. And Brittany and I worked together when she was a reporter covering Flagler and Volusia counties. That is it for today's edition of Engage. Please join us Tuesday. We'll be back at 3 in the afternoon. You can learn a lot more about today's program by visiting our website, wmfe.org. That's where you can also find this show on demand later this evening, so you can listen to it when it's convenient for you. I'm Sharon Stone. Thank you so much for joining us. All Things Considered is coming up following NPR News. And as we close out this edition of Engage, we want to leave you with the sounds of Sunday's Lunar New Year Parade. On Sunday, hundreds of people gathered on Thornton Avenue in downtown Orlando's Mills 50 district just to enjoy the drums and dragons and local dignitaries, all in celebration of this uh, new year of the dragon. I hope we get to see some dragons. He's very uh, interested in that. Yeah, a nice family event for a Sunday, beautiful weather, and uh, supports the local Orlando community. really like the parade. Yeah, it's very nice. There are different groups and all coming out to celebrate the event and you feel very happy about that. Yeah, it's very nice. And recall back those days in our back in our country, you know, just to recall the memory. Dragon dance. Dragon dance. <laughs> the dragon. They do have a different groups and different performance, and but best of all, yeah, they do pretty good, all of them.